0: Chair of the session is award-winning novelist and short story writer Rachel King, who was recent until recently the literary director of Word, the Christchurch Writers Festival. So we're delighted to have you here in Marlborough, Rachel, and you'll in your talk with Paula Morris. So thank you very much. Ta-da. Ngā mihi nui, ki Well, as you heard, my name is Rachel King, um, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here to the, this Marlborough Book Festival session, An Hour with Paul Morris. Really, it should be two hours, because Paul has led such an interesting life, so we're going to be cramming stuff in. Um, I just want to say a huge uh, thank you to the festival team, and their sponsors including Dog Point because um, having run a festival myself I know how important sponsors are and I really have to say I love this festival and all of my writer friends I say if you ever get invited for goodness sake go because it's it's such a wonderful experience and um, I think yeah you guys are really lucky to have such a beautiful beautiful festival um I first met Paula 21 years ago when we were both attending the MA in Creative Writing at the newly named IIML at Victoria University, and it was under the auspicious tutelage of Bill Mannheier. Paula immediately marked herself out as the biggest swat in the room, (laughs) Um, with her huge talent and knowledge about what creative writing is and can be. We taught each other in those days. Um, Bill gently steered the conversation rather than lecturing us. And Paula went on, unsurprisingly, to win the Adam Prize that year for the best folio, and it was no small feat when you consider that others in the class included writers such as Booker longlisted listed Anna Smail and Carl Schuker. So Queen of Beauty, the novel that we helped her to write, (laughs) uh, went on to win the best first book of fiction at the Montana New Zealand Book Awards, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now I won't give you that history in potted form like you often get in these introductions, otherwise we'll be here for the whole hour just on that. Um, So I'll just say that she's written numerous novels and short stories, essays short and long, and has picked up many accolades along the way, because that's what we're here to talk about, Paula Morris's extraordinary career and her contribution to Aotearoa's literary scene. We're going to start in 2001, because any earlier would be a travesty of time management, um, and we'll move through to today. And we'll chat for about 45 or 50 minutes, and then there'll be the opportunity to answer, uh, for you to ask questions at the end. So um, first, can we please have a big pucky pucky to welcome Paula Morris. Kia ora Rachel, you're looking quite like Kate Bush today, I must say. <laughs> i just start wafting around, Heathcliff. <laughs> um, now this is quite nerve-wracking for me because I'm chairing the best chair in New Zealand. Um, uh, Paula's husband, Tom, is going to hold up scorecards apparently throughout the session to tell me how I'm doing. Um, but Paula's chaired people like Nigella Lawson, uh, Carl Ove Knowscott. George um, Saunders. Who? George Saunders. George Saunders, yes. Booker Prize winners, Pulitzer Prize winners, probably. Kazuo
1: Ishiguro in the UK, I did him there. That was really great. What was that? Kazuo Ishiguro when I lived in the UK. Oh,
0: amazing, yes, Mm -hmm. there you go. So um, anyway, no pressure. Um, (laughs) uh, But my first question is, Paula, is can we go back to 2001? And I just want to know what made you decide to leave your quite glamorous life in America um, in marketing for record companies to come back to New Zealand and study creative writing? So the answer is I
1: met Bill Manhire. He was visiting New York and I interviewed him for the Herald, I think. And so he told me about his MA course that he had just started. It was really brand new. And I thought that sounds really good and it would be good to get away from New York where it was just incessantly about working and earning money and have a year in Wellington where I earned no money and almost froze to death. And so I applied and Tom and I just got married and I said, I've applied for this thing but I probably won't get in and of course I did. Mm. So within a few months of us getting married, I said, we'll just go to Wellington for a year. But then that, we never did go back to live in New York. We went on our gypsy life living in many different places and my husband is still very resentful about it. Mm. So it is really Bill Mannheim's fault. So did you
0: think that you would just have this year and then go back to your life in marketing? Or did you see this as the first step in a kind of a literary
1: career? I'm never very good at seeing forwards or planning or thinking ahead, really. Though in some ways I am and in other ways I am, but with my own life, I'm very much thinking, what now, what now, what now? Mm. And so I, you know, you have general aspirations about actually finishing a book. Yeah. But I really did think we would go back to New York at the end of it, mm. but we ended up going to Iowa City instead for two years, and then to New Orleans, and then to Glasgow, and then to Sheffield, and so on.
0: And that planning, I mean, like, this is what I remember about you: is that is that you seemed very methodical. You know, it felt like you had arrived with your idea, and while the rest of us kind of flailed around, you you know, you wrote chapter after chapter after chapter, and you had you had a plan, and you knew what you're doing. And then by the end of the year, you actually finished the book as well. Um, is this the way you always approach your books, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think I do. Yeah. I remember Carl kept saying, as the year went on, he was getting desperate. He was like, how many words have you written? How many words have you written? And it's like, it doesn't matter how many words anyone else has written. <laughs> it matters how many words you've written. And just yeah. get on with it. But he wrote about 150,000. I know, his book his was out of control. but <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, my days were spent... And it was probably only five days a week I spent like this, wrapped in a duvet in our really cold house on Adelaide Road. The wind gusted through it and the mice ran amok and typey typing. Don't you feel – we recently had our
0: 20-year anniversary party and unfortunately Paula was stuck in lockdown in Auckland so she couldn't come, which was a real shame. But don't you feel a sort of some nostalgia for those days where you could – that was your life, you just, one year, you're just going to go and you're going to wrap yourself in your duvet and you're going to write and you didn't have to think about anything
1: else. Deeply nostalgic for them because my life has not been like that ever since. So, mm-hmm. no, it was, I mean, we were broke. There's no doubt. And the weather was difficult. Yeah. But and not everyone in our course loved me as much as they might have. <laughs> I did. <Thank>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but um, it
1: was time to spend on writing, which I've rarely had since. Yeah. And
0: of course it was 2001 and 9-11 happened while we were there. Um,
1: How did that affect you at the time? Well, that was a really traumatic day. You'll all remember it well. Mm. And it was very strange to think about the city where I'd lived for some years and my husband had lived for 20, 25 years being so irrevocably changed. And at the time we were worried as well because it seemed like the death of irony and the death of jokes. Mm. And I was writing a a very silly novel set there called Trendy But Casual, which I'd put aside to write Queen of Beauty, and I thought I'm never gonna be able to write that now, but I was eventually. So obviously I thought of it in selfish terms as (laughs) my answer to you, in terms of what I was writing.
0: I remember Bill saying, "You know, how do we write through something like this? I mean, from now on, can you ever write a novel that doesn't mention 9-11? And, of course, the world threw up all kinds of other things
1: that... Indeed. You know, and now it's COVID. I mean, mm. I mean, so many novels I know that are being written set in 2019. Yeah. Just to get around it. Because you know. just
0: don't know what's going to happen. No. Yeah. Um, so your first novel, Queen of Beauty, set in New Orleans. Um, were and you, in Auckland as well. And in Auckland, yes. Um, Where you moved back to um, after you had stayed in New Zealand for a couple of years.
1: Can you tell us about your time in New Orleans? so I spent six years in New Orleans. I taught at Tulane, which is a, um, a very expensive private college there. And it was there, in fact, we had so much money that we could invite in Joan Didion, Toni Morrison, Salman Rushdie, and pay them the huge fees they demanded, which was great. Can you please tell me what Joan Didion was like? Well, Joan I Didion don't know was, anyone
0: who's met Joan Didion.
1: Joan Didion was very old by this point, and I was in awe of her. And we were having dinner after the event, and she looked over at me and beckoned. and I crept up and she said, uh, did you just say Christmas will always be in my heart? And I said, <laughs> no, I'm not even talking about Christmas. She said, that's good. <laughs> so Joan Didine was almost disappointed in me, but it was all right. And then I had to drive her to the airport when she left. And Joan Didine was very frail. I mean, she did have eating issues all her life. She was very frail. And she was wearing these big lace-up his boots were sheepskin. So we, we get to, we drive up to New Orleans Airport. There were these guys standing around smoking in charge of the wheelchairs. So I beckon one of them over. He brings <laughs> over the wheelchair and he looks at her. I get her out of the car. She's like a little bird. He said, damn boots are gonna be a problem. <laughs> so I knelt on the ground in front of Joan Didion and unlaced her boots and took her little bird legs out of them. I thought I can't break Joan oh. Didion's legs. That would be terrible. So I have actually knelt on the ground in front yeah, of Joan Didion.
0: Yeah. Which is and what everybody should to, do, really, when you think about no, it. No, she was fantastic. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and, of course, you were there when Hurricane Katrina hit. Um, I mean, that's another thing we could talk about for a full hour. And you write about it in, in your
1: book, False River. But could you just tell us what your experience was like? Yeah, so Hurricane Katrina, the last day of uh, August of 20, 2005. God, it was so long ago now. So we evacuated on the Sunday with everyone else the day before. I I, I need to, I I can't talk about this anymore really because you've all heard this a million times. When New Orleans went underwater, it wasn't because of the hurricane. It was because of the storm surge and because the levees failed. So it was really a man-made disaster. It was due to neglect over many years by the Army Corps of Engineers. the, The river levees held, but the lake levees did not. So in this very surreal situation of where you lived being essentially underwater, unable to go back. And we wandered really for about three months, I think, Mm -hmm. mainly in central Louisiana at first. I came back to New Zealand at some point because Hibiscus Coast was coming out and I came back and did a a book launch for it. We still couldn't live in our place. Mm -hmm. We didn't have electricity for months. We had gas intermittently. Our phone service didn't come back on for eight months. and the city was in a mess, and still is really. Um, I mean, and you know about this through Christchurch, you know how long it takes to rebuild Yeah, and after I was going to in, in um,
0: False, uh, False River, you talk about the city being shrill with stories, and, because I remember about that in, in uh, Christchurch as well, is time you saw somebody, the first question you said to someone was, how's your house?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, and you also say no rules seem to
1: apply anymore. The city was a mess, everyone was a mess. Oh yeah, because New Orleans is always on the brink of disorder and chaos at the best of times. So things like stop signs and red lights no longer had any meaning. And in fact, I learned in New Orleans, you sit, when the light turns green, you wait. You wait for the yeah. people going through the red light. But that's like Christchurch now. Really? <laughs> is it? People are terrible with red lights in Christchurch. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's like our laws no, no longer apply. It was very difficult, the rebuilding time, it was really hard, yeah. but it's still going on. Yeah. So after Queen of Beauty,
0: um, you went and did an MFA at the famous Iowa workshop as well. And so what was the project that you worked on there?
1: Was So at, in Iowa, I workshopped a lot of the short stories that ended up in my first collection, Forbidden Cities, and I also finished Hibiscus Coast, or I almost finished Hibiscus Coast. Everything is a blur to me in my life now. I think I just worked on it a lot because yeah. I don't think I finished Hibiscus Coast until I got the chance to go to Shanghai because it's partly set in Shanghai. Mm. Um, so that's what I worked on. Marilyn Robinson was my thesis supervisor. Marilyn Robinson. So I'm she was saying. my teacher, and, and I won't say what I was going to say because I just remember we were being recorded. And, <laughs> um, and it was a great experience, and I met some really wonderful friends there who I'm still friends with 20 years later. A group of us women, we were slightly older than others. We called ourselves the Dowagers. <laughs> and we still we, – everyone lives in different parts of the U.S., and then there's me overseas, mm-hmm. and we – catch up by um, by Zoom once every couple of months and we have reunions as well. And one thing about you, Paul, is you're a great
0: um, facilitator and a great bringer together of people and I imagine you had some fantastic
1: parties at Iowa as well. We had some very good parties <laughs> So My husband kept adding people to the list of people banned from our house So I said to him, you banned my entire class <laughs> and most of my students and soon there'll be no one left in Iowa who's allowed to come um, but we had some very good parties. It was a, a it was, it was a difficult time in many ways, again, because we were really broke, but it, and it was very intense, yeah, made some good friendships, wrote a lot, actually. Yeah. And so
0: Hibiscus Coast is a, is a, a art, sort of an art heist literary thriller. Would that be how you kind of explain yes. it? And then after that, you wrote the New York-based comedy, Trendy But Casual. Can you tell me what the inspiration for that novel was?
1: I used to be a publicist. So, once we're publicists, I think will be the title of my memoir, (laughs) when I'm no doubt going to be asked to write one. And it's very hard to um, get away from that. Kirsten McDougall will know about this as well. Mm. Once a publicist, always a publicist. (laughs) And actually for years, when I would go to writers' festivals, like the Auckland Festival or other places, and I'd go into the green room to turn up for my event, and someone would say to me, so who are you looking after? You just and have thought, that look about you. I must you. have the publicist aroma <laughs> still. I'd say just myself. I'm just going to be in the events.
0: Anyway, it's very funny. What I loved about that book is because your first two novels were, you know, they were quite serious. Um, and, and I just know you as one of the funniest people I know. And so what I loved about that book is that, it, is that I, I got to hear your humour. Um, if you, yeah, um, fi- find it if you can. It's a, it's a really, really funny read. I really loved it. It's a very cool novel, yeah. It's just
1: a very silly book but about being a publicist in New yeah. York and it's, it's your it was your chick moment <laughs> <laughs> yes I suppose so
0: <laughs> sorry just trying to be provocative there. <laughs> um so was it it was was it when you were researching um hibiscus coast that that you got the idea for rangatira
1: yeah, so the part of the story of Hibiscus Coast is that um, a Goldie painting is stolen from, well, stolen. It's taken out of the Auckland Museum for cleaning. And in fact, it, while it's out of the premises, it's copied. And that was based on um, a conversation I had with uh, a conservator at the Auckland City Art Gallery who said lots of really good copying was coming out of China and it was often very difficult to tell good copy from an original so that was sort of the notion there and while doing research at the museum library and into Goldie I was um, I picked up the Lindauer book edited by James Cowan Pictures of Old New Zealand and found in there the portrait of Paratene Temanu, uh, Tupuna of mine and a little oral history of his life and that was those were the seeds for Rangatira which, of course, was not published till 10 years later.
0: Mm. Which went on to win the, um, was it the Dirt's Medal then at the Montana Book Awards? Just the was Montana. It, it
1: was no,
0: it was the New Zealand Post Awards by Oh, then. okay. Oh, I can't keep up. No. Um, yeah, so it won the, the highest accolade for, for fiction that year. Um, can you just,
1: because you said he was... Be- before you ask your question, Rachel, I've got to tell you something my mother said that yeah. night. My mother was too ill then to come with us to the to the ceremony, so my father and brother came, my sister and brother-in-law, and before I left home, my mother said to me, this really wonderful thing, she said, even if you don't win, we'll all secretly know you were really the best. Oh, Which was a really good thing for my mother to say, and I think it was probably the best thing she ever said, but anyway, it was really, really a great thing, but she was just sort of setting me up, possibly for failure, because it is really hard. I mean, all writers know, or anyone who's ever up for any sort of award knows, you can't help but get your hopes up. Yeah, and
0: yeah. Well, I once won an award for um, being the best magazine sales rep at the New Zealand Magazine Awards, and my father said, "Oh well, it's not a book award, but well done anyway." <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell us? So he, it was based on your ancestry. Could you just tell us a little a bit about your Tuhunga
1: Okay, so uh, I'm from. Uh, my people are from north of Auckland, so mostly from Pakaree and Lee. Are people familiar at all with that area, Pakaree, Lee? Uh, Little Barrier, Great Barrier, all that area, but also on one side of the family, on the Wai side of the family, from Tutukaka and Nunguru, that's on my great-grandmother's side. So that whole stretch of coast and islands is is Tūranga Waiwai really, And the book's about to be published in Te Reo Māori as well. Yes. Can you
0: tell us what that process has been like?
1: weird. So, you know, there's this Kotahiro Pukapuka Puka initiative, a uh, hundred books in Māori, They and one of the books is uh, the uh, first Harry Potter novel translated into Te Reo Māori, which is Auckland University Press's greatest seller of all times.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's only been out for not very long. Yeah, you know, they sold
1: like 20,000 of them, yeah. so it's it's floating everything else, which is great. And uh, Rangatira has been translated by someone who's also Ngāti Wai, and it's coming up very soon. I'm not sure when, mm. but it was a very interesting process because in real life, Paratene Tamani could only speak Te Reo Māori. The conceit of the book was that he secretly spoke English and was writing this down, this record down in English, mm. and now it's been translated into mm. Te Reo. Mm. So the whole thing is, is become, has become quite matter. And I was able to share with the translator um, a letter he wrote in Te Reo, so she could get a notion of mm-hmm. of it's, his style oh, as well and brilliant. usage. Yeah. Um, just as an aside, one of the things I loved about that book
0: too was was your humour coming through. You know, you gave your sense of humour to your ancestor as well. I thought it was very
1: dry. Yeah, well, there's a lot of uh, of wits or half wits in our family, so <laughs> I wanted to get a lot of that, that wit into it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so about this time, you also
0: started writing young adult novels um, for an American market primarily. Do you do you approach writing young adult differently than you do adult fiction?
1: Yes, and it really annoys me when people say there's no difference. There's a marked difference. Adult readers will put up with all sorts of nonsense. Young readers are much more intolerant. They want story. And they're also really narcissistic, so they don't want old people in there at all. <laughs> I'm often reading people's manuscripts, and they're like, and then the mother figure will be really important. It's like, yeah, no one wants to read about the mother. Okay? They want to read about the teenagers. I got into it because I was already ghostwriting in that area. I'm, some of you know I, I have made... Well, when people say, oh, Paula, it's so long since your last book, I'm like, actually, I've written five in that space yeah. because I ghostwrite so much YA for other people in the States. And you've got confidentiality clauses, so you can never yeah. tell me what, who, who no. they are. People and People always go, oh. asking me. I'm like, I can't tell you. I sign contracts. <laughs> and in fact, I just recently did a, an outline for someone, um, a, an old client. So they'll pay you just to come up with the idea for the book. So they'll say... So, the premise is, you know, Rachel King lives in Christchurch, high jinks occur, there's a happy ending. And so, and then I write a 10 page outline, and then someone else writes the book. Um, So, I just did that recently. There's a great story
0: in, um, in False River where, where somebody's commissioned to come up with these ideas, and can you just tell us what they come so up with? So there's a instead? story
1: called Premises, and it's about being commissioned to come up with ideas, and all the ideas are just Jane Austen novels <laughs> with different numbers of sisters and different numbers of suitors, weddings, letters, old houses, <laughs> and then finally they come up with Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre And oh. yeah, because the company doesn't quite like it. Yeah, I've had many of those experiences. Mm. So writing my own, I thought, well, I know how to do this. And also I've got some books that editors can see. It's a show that I've written them. Um, So I wrote four, Uh, two set in New Orleans, one in New York, where I went to university, which is allegedly the most haunted city in Europe and one in Rome. So they're all supernatural mysteries and Mm. they were very enjoyable to write Mm. and yeah, and hard to write
0: incredibly well.
1: Yeah, the first one, Ruin, sold over 300,000. It's, yeah, it did really well. Um, But you know, you only have so much energy in your life and so much time. Yeah, yeah, as well, I know, I can relate to that. Um,
0: So you you had the Forbidden Cities short stories as well, um, but you've also contributed to edited or co-edited many collections, including uh, last year's A Clear Dawn, um, new Asian writing. Um, why do you think, or how important do you think these kinds of anthologies are that you've, so
1: Ko Aotearoa tato was the other one, or why do you think these are important, these anthologies? Anthologies are a really good way of bringing together established and emerging writers often. So I'm working on one at the moment of contemporary short Maori fiction, which brings together established emerging writers. The one you mentioned, A Clear Dawn, was about, fully about emerging writers. It was the first ever anthology of Asian writing, Asian fiction, poetry, and nonfiction in New Zealand, which is crazy, given the amount of talent we have. Mm-hmm. And they're a good way of people, firstly of people sampling a whole lot of writers. It's also provides, it also provides opportunities for writers who other editors and publishers and agents and festival directors will come across mm-hmm. while looking in, in an anthology Rather than waiting for a whole book,
0: it was beautifully produced as well. That that actually they both were. Um, mm. uh, Canterbury University Press published. Uh, Otago, Ko, Ko, oh. oh sorry, was Otago, yes, Otago, called Tato, um, and Auckland University Press with the with the Clear Dawn.
1: Alison Wong and I edited the Clear Dawn, and we're very proud of it. It's there's 75 writers in it. It was a huge amount of work. Mm. It was way too much work, and mm. we had a a weekly Zoom. She, Alison's in Australia, and I, I'm in Auckland, we had a weekly Friday afternoon Zoom where we would go through things, whether it was editing pieces, going through our introduction. It was it was a very intense relationship. And then a year ago, we toured the South Island, we toured, went to Arrowtown, Wanaka, Dunedin, Invercargill, because the Asia New Zealand Foundation said, if you go to Southland, we'll give you money. We're like, we are there. And, and they came to
0: word as well in do. Yeah, we,
1: that's right, and I was supposed to come to that, but as usual, Auckland was yeah. in lockdown. That was really great, except my husband got tired of Alison and me in the car talking nonstop. (laughs) But aside from that, it was great. Um, And your story, False River,
0: was shortlisted
1: for the Sunday Times Award? Yes. so in the UK, they have a very lucrative 30,000-pound short story award. And so my story, False River, that is the title track of that collection, uh, set in New Orleans um, after the storm, because everything in New Orleans is before or after the storm. That was shortlisted, and that's judge-blind. So they said uh, the judges got a real shock because they thought that I was an American man (laughs) because it's a male point-of-view character and it's from New Orleans, and they were really shocked that I was a woman from New Zealand. I think they were slightly annoyed because women were dominating. (laughs) In fact, I think we were all women that year, possibly but no. they had been convinced that I was an older man from America. So okay. that's why other They thought persona. they were being
0: diverse by having you in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can we just talk about craft for a minute? Um, so you recently said, I, I, I sneakily listened to something, a talk that you gave recently at the Auckland Art Gallery. Um, and you recently said in that talk that ideas are the enemy of the creative writer, particularly the apprentice writer. Can you expand on the idea of why you think ideas don't make stories?
1: Yeah, and also I gave a, I recorded a TEDx talk um, this week about this, oh, similar right. thing actually, because I was coerced into doing this for school and it was yesterday so I couldn't do it in person so I had to record it and uh, it was about how imagination is really important no matter what you're endeavour you are in in life. Mm. If you work in science or in business, whatever you're doing, the imagination, imagining what could possibly be, imagining what's not there. In sport as well, and talked about Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay climbing Everest. You have to imagine it's possible in order to do it. uh, Much more compelling than ideas. I think people get really bogged down with ideas, Mm. with inspiration, with the light bulb moment which we all wish happened to us every five minutes. But in fact, often imagination and collaboration are much more important parts of the process. Mm. And I was talking to a lady here who teaches young people, librarian overseeing the work of young people and they often get very bound up in the idea. So their idea is suddenly there's a lockdown here, zombies are at the door, we all have to hunker down. That's the idea. But there's no story yet, because there are no characters. And the the characters and the story are the much more important thing. So uh, my teacher at at Iowa, the late Frank Conroy said, ideas are are great, but they'll only get you so far. And I think often we put too much emphasis on creativity and ideas rather than on imagination and um, And dreaming. And craft as well. Well, I mean,
0: obviously. I kind of get the sense with a lot of your work that you kind of, you build a story from I mean, That's the kind of what I got from from that talk was that yeah, you don't say, "Oh, I'm going to have this idea and I'm going to um, I'm going to write it," but more you, you you build it from the ground up.
1: I talk about that quite a lot with with student writers that often you're just gathering things along the way. I talked about this with Ian Weddy briefly yesterday, though I think it was after the session rather than during it. I said to him, "For me, going to this Anselm Kiefer exhibition at the Royal Academy in London in 2014." led to stories like The Three Princesses. Mm. It led to the story in some way, The Third Snow. Not directly and literally, but seeing Anselm Kiefer's work about European forests maybe unlock something or turn something Mm. in my mind. So then I'm thinking about the forest, the fairy tale, the Mm. European darkness, and how I can play around with it. Mm. And often it's a, you know, that's one of the elements but it might be something else. In the case of the three princesses, it was us staying in a hotel in An Estonia and seeing a particular print they had on the wall of a, a, a famous painting of, of three women, um, grand or archduchesses of Saxony with these very elaborate blonde plaited hairdos. So it all kind of goes into the tumble dryer of your brain mm-hmm. and then eventually certain things coalesce together So it's not about one idea, it's about many different experiences and thoughts and... Connections. Yeah, connections. I love what Michael
0: Chabon says about each of
1: his books, starts with a yearning. Well, that's the whole Robert Olin Butler thing as well. So Robert Olin Butler, the American writer and a nut, I'll say that on record, um, has a book called From Where You Dream about the writing process and he says, Uh, art does not come from ideas, it comes from the white hot center of you. Mm. So it's what are you passionate about? What are you really interested in? What drives you? But the yearning is a big thing with him. So he Mm. won't let students in his MFA course at Tallahassee, I think, workshop, unless on the front page, he can detect the yearning. And I met some of these (laughs) students once, they said, oh, we've been in the course for over a year, we still haven't been able to workshop anything there's insufficient yearning and I thought this is a good ruse I should be saying this to my students uh sorry insufficient yearning come back later but I do see what he's saying it's like where is the passion here where is the conflict where is the desire that's what he wants to see in there
0: I mean I I often think of yearning too as just being you have this thing that's just out just there and you, you you kind of you're sort of straining towards it, but you don't quite know what it is. And that's, that's what you're kind of working
1: out on the page as well. No, absolutely. Yeah, you don't think it all and then just write it down. It's the process of writing that where things arise and come to the table. And you said in that talk that you tell your students to stop thinking so much. Oh, I'm always shouting at people to stop thinking. I said a little exercise, so I'll say, just write down everything you associate with autumn. Everything, good and bad. And some of them are sitting there. I say, stop thinking, just write, write anything. It doesn't have to be right. Just write anything down because they're overthinking. Mm. And that's when they get themselves into places where they can't write because they're too busy thinking and not actually just writing. And it's a lack of bravery, I think, because as we know in all artistic endeavors and in scientific ones as well, and in business ones, there is trial and error. You try something, see if it works. Mm. Try something else, see if it works. You can't wait till the perfect thing happens. Mm. And what about the role of the subconscious? Because Norman Mailer said
0: something interesting. I think he called it the unconscious. You have to pamper it like a racehorse
1: (laughs) in order for it to do do its work. Well, my unconscious is so out of control. Sometimes I'll tell my husband that, dream i've had he says please seek professional help because <laughs> <laughs> it's really but i do think it's writing is your or, or, <laughs> sorry <laughs> oh,
0: i'm thinking about the dream you were telling us about this morning we were all staying in a house um sue so was there in chris and we were kind of sharing dreams this morning but i won't get you to
1: see i've already forgotten it actually <laughs> my, my, my unconscious has moved on um <laughs> I mean, if you think when you're in the zone of creating any sort of work of art, it is your conscious and your unconscious mind working together. Mm-hmm. And you do need the craft, the ability, yes. the technique, as you were saying, you need to be able to apply it. But you also need to really be in a zone of creation that that draws on your unconscious. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I think, what we do when we play when we're children. You must all remember playing as children. Mm-hmm. And remember how what's real and what isn't real blurs and time speeds by. And until you're called for dinner or called for bed or something, but you're now in have to make zone. the zone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you call yourself though. Sometimes, I mean, if I'm working, I just I don't want I don't want any disruptions. Just want to keep going. Yeah. And I think often we lose that as we get older. Yeah. I did have one friend, by the way, who said she never played as a child, that they didn't have toys of any kind. But she's you a don't very need strange toys friend. To play. No, I know. I know. So just for the sake of the podcast, um, an audience member's pointing out it could be a mental health issue, which in the case of my friend, I think is absolutely true. Mm. But th- that, that that freedom of playing, mm. that freedom and excitement and the fluidity, and you know how in play, you often come back to the same things again, but with variations, mm. I feel that that's, that's the joy of writing. Mm. And,
0: I'm just thinking about dialogue, too, because in False River, again, you've got this wonderful story called, well, it's not a story, an essay called Women Still Talking, which is quite an affectionate portrait of your mother's flaws. Um, but it also reveals some of the secrets of your craft because you talk about
1: eavesdropping on people. Can you yeah. just tell us about I'm that? I'm a terrible eavesdropper, and I, um, for that story Women Still Talking, which was partly about my mother, who I miss very much, but she would talk nonstop for hours and hours. And she would link her stories, disparate stories together by saying, however, <laughs> or, and that passed off. And then there would be some other story entirely. it was quite artful actually. But I would, um, I still tend to have notebooks. So if I'm sitting at a cafe, or in this case on a train for that story, I was sitting on a train across from women um, in a group, and then a, another woman who they didn't know sat with them, and then they all talked. And I, I just took a lot of notes. It was really fantastic. It was a really fantastic conversation, but I'm, I'm a big believer in eavesdropping and but, stealing generally.
0: But how do you turn those eavesdrop conversations into,
1: into fiction that is something interesting that people want to read? So for example, in Hibiscus Coast, I wasn't planning on eavesdropping, but I went somewhere for dinner. And obviously I was by myself. They think they thought I was a restaurant reviewer because I was writing in my notebooks. So they kept bringing me all these things I hadn't ordered. It was brilliant. <laughs> But I could not help notice around me that there were tables of men, most of whom were white and of a certain age, and with them was a young woman, a local, and sort of business dinners. But near me, there was a young woman who was Chinese and a a white man. And at one point, I heard her say something like, I mean, it's in the book, I just wrote, put it in the book. She said, what if I was to come to the door, what would your wife say? And I really I thought I was going to fall off my chair <laughs> trying to eavesdrop on that conversation because I'm like, this would work really well in my novel. So could you speak up? Because I would really like this in my novel. I just didn't. And so I, w- I took what I could from that because it was really, it really worked with the story. Because Emma, my main character, who is a Chinese New Zealander in Shanghai, that, where her, her dead mother was from gets caught up in a, a very unhealthy relationship with an expatriate white New Zealander, so it was very useful to me, so yeah that 's how I reckon it. Out. and what was the answer? What
0: would the wife say if she came to the I couldn 't hear <laughs> but the you guy was I think up. doing
1: a lot of like uh, you know but uh, yeah
0: yeah um, going back to False River, which is a fantastic book by the way, Thank and you. everyone should buy it um, it's a really unusual book, which has actually caused problems for you, I know, because because it's part fiction and part non-fiction, you couldn't enter it into the Ockham Book Awards, it would right. defied categorisation. Um, so it's fiction and it's essays, but you've also got biography in there as well. Um, Robert Johnson and... Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid. Um, and also one of my favourite things in the book is your Laura Ingalls Wilder, uh, Little House on the Prairie, where you... well. Tell us what she meant to you as a child and then what the result of your research was.
1: Who here has read Laura Ingalls Wilder? Oh, look. Those of you who haven't really have wasted your lives, but you probably haven't seen The Godfather either. (laughs) Um, I absolutely loved her books as a child. And when I stopped working in the record business, I went on a big odyssey in the US to all the places where she'd lived. So from South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Kansas, Missouri. And then I even went to upstate New York where her husband, Almanzo, grew up. Went to all those places, went to the various hideous pageants they have every year uh, where they reenact things from the book that are really reenacted from the TV series. And what yeah, very weird. And, <laughs> and also did a lot of research. I spent quite a lot of time as a Hoover scholar at, at uh, the Hoover Institute in West Branch, Iowa, where all Rose Wilder Lane's papers were left and also at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, where quite a lot of stuff was left as well. And I thought I would write a book, but I just got so disenchanted with it, I didn't. And then I was talking earlier with Claudia, there's a very good book that was written a few years ago, Prairie Fires, a fantastic book about Laura Ingalls Wilder, and that would have been the book I would have wanted Mm -hmm. to write. So I'm glad someone else who was a lot more um, hardworking than me got it written. But I still wrote this long essay, Rocky Ridge yeah. for...
0: It's, very, it's about 10,000 words. I, yeah, I it's think, yeah. Long, yeah, it's super long, yeah. It's the longest thing in the book. Um, one thing I'm really impressed by with you is, you know, you don't just have an idea for something and, and do a bit of googling for research, you actually go to the places. What, how important is
1: it for you to, to actually get amongst all those archives and visit those places? I love going to places. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you miss travel I'm so bad at travel now, I only bought like three items of clothing with me for this whole week. I've forgotten how to travel. I've forgotten I've forgotten everything. But I really like walking in footsteps and trying to imagine. So when I was riding Rangatira, I went up to Ngongru and a, a woman who's a cousin of mine um, took took us in a dinghy somewhere where the old Pa site was so we could just climb over, I mean, there's nothing left, but just to climb around there and think about what could be seen and what could be smelled and just to have that experience. Now going to London and Birmingham was obviously quite different Mm. because so much of what uh, my character and the the Māori he travelled with experienced in 1863 has gone. And particularly in Birmingham, well, I thought it was the Luftwaffe's fault, but it wasn't. It was the town planners of the 60s, Mm. just all these things gone. But And also, you can never travel back in time, obviously. London and Birmingham those days was filthy. You know, the black skies, coal smoke, fog. And so just having to imagine it. But luckily, I was writing that book in Glasgow, living in a tenement apartment built in the 19th century, which was also freezing, so that was mm-hmm. quite helpful. But I did get to go to one place that they had been, and that was um, Marlborough House, which is now the co- head of the Commonwealth and it's where the Māori Party were entertained by, or met, the then Prince and Princess of Wales, so the future Edward Seventh and Queen Alexandra. So I infiltrated it and got to see the big salon with these incredible painted murals um, of the Duke of Marlborough's exploits, which of course include the Battle of Blenheim, after which your town is named. So you'll know all this anyway, Marlborough, Blenheim. It all makes sense to you. But But being there was, Really incredible because I looked up and I thought, well, firstly, Paratene Temani would see these are the Duke of Marlborough's Tawa, right, his war expeditions, just like Paratene had been on in the 1820s with Hongi Hika. Here they were all commemorated, and then in one corner, something you can see that I had not known existed because it's not on the website, and in fact, I don't even think it's in the brochure that you can get, is a black face a young black man who was either the, the Duke's favourite steward or slave or slash slave. But I thought, I bet you that the Māori Party would have noticed that dark face staring down at them, the only dark face in the whole place. I'm sure that they would have noticed it. So I was able to write it into the book. That mm-hmm. was something I only knew about because I was because there. You went there and yeah. to think them seeing it. So I like that kind of thing. Yeah. and. I mean, you write
0: these kind of mini-biographies of people. You, you were also very interested in Jean Rhys for... Oh, I'm still... You, you're still working on that?
1: So, I'm trying, I, Kirsten was talking about writing a play. I'd like to write a play, but I really don't know how, so I've just been thinking about it for about five years. But there was a summer that Jean Rhys spent in the south of France, and Tom and I have actually been to the house, um, which has really high gates. We were climbing the gates and hanging <laughs> off them and peering over which is something I did um, in Rome once. Have you seen the film Roman Holiday? You know where Gregory Peck's character is living? And it's still there, but it's got gates. So I have lain on the ground trying (laughs) to see under the gates and just hoping someone will come and say, would you like to go in? But no one has said that yet. Um, But with Jimmy, she spent the summer as a ghostwriter. This is all absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Um, In the south of France, this mansion in uh, uh, Le lepin and before she was Jean Reese, when she was still Ella Longley, and the woman she was writing for this very rich American was the mother in law of Rudolph Valentino. And just everything about it is crazy. This woman believed that if you'd had a past life as an Egyptian, probably Cleopatra, right? <laughs> then you should decorate your house in an Egyptian style. And so Jean Reese was trying to write this book with her. So for a, I've done a huge amount of work on it. I've even been to the um, archives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, we've been to Joanne Le Pan. I've spent a lot of time at the British Library because Jean Reese was a chorus girl for a while. So I found a recording of the star of the show she was in and with the chorus mm-hmm. singing in it, and listened to it. And I, d- I love all that stuff, mm. but eventually I will do it.
0: I'm just not sure when. Yeah. Great. And then of course another writer you were interested in was Robin Hyde. So Shining Land, for sale out in the foyer. Um it's a beautiful book. It's a collaboration with the um with the photographer Haru Samashima. Um and did anyone come to Paula's um lecture the other day? Which was absolutely fascinating. Um so I won't dwell on it too much because you did a whole hour on it, but it's a gorgeous book. Um, so, But what I'm interested in, what you didn't touch on on your lecture was you say of Robin Hyde that she was, quote, vivid and roaring all the time, waiting too much, too wild, sorry, wanting too much, too wild inside. I try to douse my own wildfires. And I just want to know why you try and douse your
1: own wildfires, but also how did you identify with her and what parallels did you see? Rachel asked me yesterday, I think. I think you asked me, you said, will you work at the University of Auckland until you retire? Which instantly made me want to kill myself, but anyway. (laughs) And I said to her, no, at some point I will be walked off the premises, escorted by a security guard holding a box of my possessions. And I think that's probably how I will leave the university. Because really, at some point, the plates are going to rack up. Um, But, yeah, because I can't always control the fire inside. Mm. And... You called yourself a difficult woman. I am a difficult woman.
0: Um, And you said you're secretive. I'm really secretive. (laughs) Can you tell me some secretive? Everything I've said is is untrue today. (laughs) Uh, You you say I work too hard and achieve too little. I mean, it's really interesting for me to to find these insights into you, who I've known for so long, um, in this thing about Robin Hyde. You know, you just kind of sneak them in there, almost so that people won't notice, but you've kind of...
1: You guys know I work too hard. I mean, yeah. I've had four sessions here before this. So people ask me to have I had a nice time here. The answer is no. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been living on my nerves the whole time, you know? And just it's too I mean, tonight I have to write a reference for someone, tomorrow I have to be interviewed, then I have to give an hour long webinar for someone else. It's just constant. And sometimes I think I'm going to crack. In fact, I think I threatened it last week. I said, I'm going to crack. I'm going to crack. But I didn't crack. Yeah. Onwards.
0: Anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful book. I'm, one of my favourite genres, I think, is literary essays that also investigate the personal as well. And that you know, that perfectly fits there. As do, you know, I could go on forever about False River because there's a gorgeous one about, um, about heroines who are sick, in, in books that you read um, but also drawing parallels with your own life and your
1: father's illness. Said, I cried. That's called Sick Notes, that, that essay which yeah. is hard for me to read now but because I read so much growing up like what Katie did, Heidi, the Shelley School books where the heroines were sickly and I just really aspired to be carted around in a bath chair being attended to. Unfortunately they tended to just have a lot of fresh air and then recover. Remember they were all sort of it's like, oh, look, Clara can walk after you all. I'm like, I would stick in the bath chair if I were you. I'd be Elizabeth Barrett Browning languishing for years and then getting married and going up to Italy. And there's nothing wrong with her, you know, but all those years. And I can see why, because... Well, you can have a rest when you're sick, can't you? That's. Something. I know. I kept hoping I'd get COVID because, yeah. you know, just to have a rest, but no.
0: So Paula is the hardest-working woman of New Ze- in the New Zealand literature scene, I have to say. And the thing is, you do so much for so many people and I think people don't realise as well just quite how much you do, do for us, for everybody. Um, there's just a few of your projects that I'd just like to quickly talk about and then we'll have some questions. But um, the first is the, um, the Aotearoa, oh, sorry, the, the Academy of New Zealand Literature. Can you just tell us a
1: little bit about that quickly? So you should go to the website, ANZliterature.com for latest on contemporary New Zealand writers, mid-career and senior writers. So we have features, we have fantastic interviews, including a great one with Pat Grace uh, that Adam Dudding did a few years back. And we've been running reviews as well um, since lockdown, though I don't know how much longer we'll do that. Uh, and then in the our backroom work we do things like eBooks about our writers that go to festival directors around the world to try to get New Zealanders more opportunities. And we've just done an eBook where New Zealand writers writing about Japan, we have it in English and also in Japanese. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to be in Japan in October, and I'm going to take some printed copies with me. But also, it's an e-blast that can go to all teachers of Japanese here in New Zealand, and also to anyone interested in New Zealand literature in Japan. Yeah. And and you do a lot of the
0: stuff in your own time. You don't get paid for it. you, you worked uh, you were on the board of the Maori Literature Trust for a while, and now yeah yep, and now you've set up this really fantastic website, the Maori Literature Hub. Can you just um, just briefly tell us what, what it is, but also I'd love to hear about what you
1: think about what it's like to be a Maori writer in 2022? Okay, so is, it's which is a type of storehouse and the platform, so it's nz. And it was because I was teaching at the National Māori Writers' Hui and I found out that nobody knew anywhere to send their work and nobody read anything. So people had no idea of landfall, say. I'd say, well, you could send this to landfall. Well, I don't know how. So I wanted to have a site where a Māori writer, aspiring writer, and to be honest, many non-Māori writers could go and say, who's publishing what? And who have they published recently? And how do I get in touch with them? and also opportunities for residencies, competitions, awards and so on. But to, to be a Maori writer now, well, it's both an exciting time and it's very frustrating. I was moaning to Rachel earlier that, for those of us who are Gen X, so if you think the novelists, Maori novelists of the Gen X generation, me, James George, Kaliana Murray, Alice Tawai, who's now written a novel, um, a bit younger than us, but Tina Makareti, we get quite overlooked in things. And in fact, there was the kupu first Māori Writers Festival in Rotorua. And I rang them to say, could I do something in this? And they said, oh, yes, you can come down and teach two school classes, which I did, and then be on your way. You know, didn't want me for anything else at all. And you often feel like younger writers coming up have not read your work or know anything about it. So often people... they might have read Patricia Grace. Yeah, they've read Patricia and Witty, but then they'll say, oh, all the old style work is very rural and Maori centric. It's like, well, you, you need to read... Queen of Beauty or Hibiscus Coast or any of my stories. And, you know, remember when Kerry Hume, uh, I don't know if you remember this, she was nominated for something called the Pegasus Award for Maori writers back in the 80s. And C.K. Stead came out guns blazing to say, well, you're not really, you know, she's writing a novel, that's not a Maori form. And yeah, no, he he was Mm -hmm. charming on the subject. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we have a new generation who are saying the same thing. Are you writing a novel that's not really a Maori form? So we have the same kind of reactionary um, comments and impulses, but now directed from a younger generation who are very hot on what is and what isn't matauranga Māori. And uh, obviously we persevere, but it's, I think it's a strange time in that way. Mm. It is a strange time for us.
0: I think sometimes, I mean, you're not afraid to speak your mind, and sometimes you inadvertently cause controversy. And Um, sometimes on purpose as well. Um,
1: Do you think sometimes the work you do is misunderstood? Yeah, it's it's funny. Both Rachel and I are now referred to as, you know, institutional figures, gatekeepers. It's quite funny because we're just silly girls, really, still. But I often think when people talk about gatekeeping it is a very important role because the gatekeeping is not just keeping people out, it's opening the gates um, and shepherding people through. Like those, there must be gates open to let all those sheep around the, the vines, the vineyards. The rums, what? what are they doing in there, those sheep? Nibbling <laughs> away. But it's a, it is something you take really seriously and I think some people think if you're a gatekeeper you're just a bad person rather than you're someone who's spending quite a lot of your time trying to open gates and trying to open doors and trying to open windows mm. and encourage people. There is some bad gatekeeping that goes on here. There was a recent anthology, which I won't name, but that had no Asian writers in it, no Pacific writers, only two Maori writers, and one of them was Witi Ihumaira, no Auckland writers, except for Witi. And it's like, I think when you are in that position of gatekeeping, it's incumbent on you to really do the work and to realize that you don't know a lot and that you have to ask, you have to ask for help, you have to collaborate, you have to reach out. Mm. But I think people think you have more power than you have, they think you have more money than you have and they don't realize how much is done for free, often by women actually, and often by women of a certain age. Mm. That's why I'm leaving the New Zealand Book Awards Trust after five years, I just left the Maori Literature Trust after five years, those are five years of hundreds and hundreds of hours of unpaid work. Mm. And at some point, you, you really want to step away to let someone else do it. Yeah.
0: Um, it's interesting, in your book, Shining Land, um, Frank Sargison called Robin Hyde a, a trying old thing when she was Iris Wilkinson and a silly bitch when she was Robin
1: Hyde as well. So, Yeah, the boys' club are not always very helpful to Robin <laughs> Hyde's... Um, but all literature scenes are petty and nasty, all literature scenes everywhere, probably all art circles are. You know, makes life interesting? It does. Um, <laughs> Kirsten said something funny uh, when we talked about uh, Pat Grace last night, and I said, "You know, having all those children and jobs and writing." And Kirsten said, when did she have time to be having arguments on Facebook and having Twitter feuds? It's like, exactly, yeah. Pat did not make time in her life for those things. I mean, obviously they didn't exist, but it's easy to get drawn into this kind of thing, and it is just a waste of time. Except that the generation before us just wrote letters to the listener backwards
0: and forwards. It's the same as a Twitter That's true. Twitter spat, but it would just be a lot slower.
1: <laughs> and longer. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, do we have any questions in the audience?
1: Everyone's terrified, I'll be mean to them. No questions?
0: Um, right, well, while you're thinking about your riveting question that you're going to ask, um, if an alien came down to New Zealand right now and looked at the New Zealand literature scene, um, and I'm not just talking about the, the Twitter spats, but um, ha- how would you describe it to them? What would they find?
1: I think we're at a. Uh, we have many new and interesting voices emerging. We have many smaller presses, independent presses and independent initiatives, bringing a wider variety of books. if I'm thinking about fiction here and poetry in particular, we've always had strong nonfiction publishing. So, I mean, if you think for the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards, maybe in total 180 books were submitted last year. And that's just books for adults. And that's just books that the publishers think have a chance at the Auckland New Zealand Book Awards. So Mm. a lot of really wonderful publishing will not be included in that. And if you look at the shortlist, or even the longlist this year, a wide range of publishers from very tiny operations to multinationals. So I would say this is a time of growth and change and transition. Mm. I know that publishers are still desperate for a wider diversity of voices and are very keen to nurture new talent, and not just young talent, because you're never too old to write a book. You might be too young to write one, but you're never too old. So um, new talent can emerge at any age, and so that's good. I would say there's still not enough opportunities for fiction writers here. If you live in Australia, you would have a zillion percent chance more of of getting your book published. and in
0: awards, lots of
1: awards. Lots of well. awards. I was reminded of this because I judged an Australian historical novel competition two years ago. Massive amounts of money involved. And for that, actually, there were about 180 books. So maybe I'm just making up this 180 figure. It's just in my head. Mm. Of It was open to New Zealand writers as well. I think there were five New Zealand books and the rest were Australian. Mm. And they were all books that had been published in the previous year. Many with good presses. I mean, some of them were, were nonsense, but... Mm there was a, a solid chunk of historical novels, like maybe 80, that had been published with, with good publishers, well-written, well-presented. It's, I mean, it's a bigger market, but I think we are still very much at the mercy of our small market here. I think we could probably count five New Zealand novels that would be eligible for that this yeah. year.
0: Do we have any questions yet? Don't be shy. No. Oh, yes, here we go. There's one here. Is Good, it in the um, middle there?
1: Just wait for the microphone. If you guys, if you want us um, to hear my Shining Land talk, it was recorded as well, and it's there's visuals with it too. Kia ora, Paula. Thank you. Um, why do you ghostwrite? Oh, for money. <laughs> <laughs> do we have another question? <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason. There's another question just here. Paula,
0: I quite enjoy the Gen X as being the forgotten generation, actually, because um, all the arguments are about the millennials versus the boomers. And the boomers weird. versus millennials I'm like, what about us? It's just so weird because actually, you know, we're quite important.
1: We're just laid back. Okay. No, though, I have to think some of my Gen X peers are the parents of my of of my students, and I feel that they should have done a little bit more with the whole general knowledge thing, but. I don't like to criticise my generation too much, but really, if your parents have children, please tell them some stuff. I said once to a class of undergraduates, I said, oh, it's like that old debate, who's worse, Mao or Stalin? And a lot of people had no idea who Mao or Stalin were, and these are second-year university students. I blame the parents.
0: (laughs) Do we have any more questions?
1: Yes? Luke Elworthy my landlord thanks very much you guys that was fantastic um Paula just uh, your thoughts about uh, what you said about Australia and the well-resourced
0: literary prizes and things I mean bigger wealthier country but do you think that has anything to do with the relative difference in the importance of public giving and philanthropy, particularly for the arts in this country
1: I do think so I think Auckland is swarming with people who've got a lot of money. I see them at the hairdressers. I see their cars. I know people got lots of money and they're still quite tight about giving it or sharing it. And it doesn't seem to affect visual art the same way it affects us in literature, perhaps because then they don't have something to show for it. You know, Though I would be happy for them to hang my book on the wall and I could do a special framed edition for them if they wanted. Mm-hmm. If that would help at all, um, in fact, that might be an I idea for art, all of us. Don't mm. So, because you know, someone might be, buy one less painting a year, but be able to sponsor a book award for decades. We still don't have a sponsor for our general nonfiction award at our at the Auckland New Zealand Book Awards. Now, if you think nonfiction publishing is excellent in this country, mm. really, f- from from the essays and memoirs to histories to you know. Book like, uh, books like books um, like Dave Lowe's on climate change, which won best first book in that category this year. Vincent O'Malley won uh, best book. Pat Grace's memoir was a finalist. Really great books. But who, where is the person who will step forward? Just we're not talking a lot of money here, relatively speaking. If there's anybody uh, here who has a spare fifteen thousand a year, or really twenty, okay. Oh, sorry, twenty. 20. <laughs> a lot of expenses, but. <laughs> I mean, that's why we have so much money for the Fiction Prize, because one woman, Jan Medlicott, through the Acorn uh, Trust in Tauranga, donated in perpetuity. She put her money down because she loves to read. She loves fiction. She loves New Zealand books. And it feels to me like there should be more than one or two people like that. So, So the question is saying that, you know, Should we feel sorry for rich people, I think, (laughs) to summarise? Because recently the academy um, didn't get the funding it was hoping to get. And so one of my friends said, oh, don't worry, I know loads of rich people. I play golf with them. I'll I'll just ask them. And she she got back to me. She said, this is much harder than I thought. She said, apparently no one is interested in books and writers. Mm -hmm. I'm like, "Mm -hmm." Mm mm-hmm. But... What I found was that a lot of them would give five thousand dollars, and I realized five thousand dollars for a very rich person is like twenty dollars for me. It's like if someone really wants money, I give them twenty dollars, and I feel generous, but it won't really hurt me. Mm. So I think for them, I took, I got in a lot of five thousand dollars from people. Oh, that's fine. I can make it. I can make it last. Um, but I think maybe our literature still suffers as well from some element of the cultural cringe in some circles. We're not seen as glamorous as anything Look international. how glamorous
0: this is. This is why we're so grateful to the sponsors of this festival.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we can't really thank sponsors enough because once they are really willing to support our literary culture, especially by giving wine, which I feel is a, an ideal sponsorship, <laughs> it's, it's really, really important because otherwise these conversations couldn't take place. Mm. And otherwise, our writers would be even more bitter and, and disheveled than they already are. <laughs> Yes. So um, one more yeah, question. I'm going
0: to pull you back to the to the YA because it's close to my heart.
1: <laughs> um, if, if we go back about five years, there was um, a really really strong uh, YA presence of writing in New Zealand, and I think that that's sort of dropped. and in, in the last five years, we've still got um, writing that's maybe for the year 7 to 10 group, but yeah, junior fiction, they've forgotten yeah. about the YA for the, where, the, where that reading falls off. But I is, should say to you, it's not that they've forgotten about it, it doesn't sell well enough here. Oh, Don't forget that okay. we're competing with here, yeah. any author here is competing with everyone else writing in the English language. And the big series that come out of this, particularly celebrity authors out of the UK and the US, they're selling. But yeah. YA doesn't sell enough for publishers to want to take a risk on it local YA. Okay. So everything yeah. is always comes back to what do people buy? And I say this about short stories all the time. At any given point in New Zealand there is a short story competition going on. You're probably all entering one as we speak, right? <laughs> Secretly <laughs> on your phones. And yet short story collections don't sell very well, and neither do short story anthologies. And I think they should make it a a requirement of entry to any competition that someone has to show a receipt for a short story collection they've actually bought Mm. because we all want to write them, but we don't want to actually read or buy them. And if we want there to be more short stories published, then we need as consumers to go in and buy them or get them out the library, which also helps. If, you know, there's a big demand at a library, though obviously as authors, we always prefer that hard $2 coming through our royalty statements. But Mm. what can we do to support this? If we want more local YA, then we absolutely need to encourage our young people to read it, which means buying it for them as Christmas presents and seeking it out and asking for it at bookshops. And so that message goes back through sales reps. Can I just soapbox for a
0: moment as well? Yes. In Australia, they actually have a quota
1: with schools about a percentage
0: of books that they have to buy that are Australian books. New Zealand has nothing like that. School libraries don't get a separate ring-fenced funding. It has to come out of their general funding. So there are actually ways that the government could help New Zealand writers write YA and actually for it to sell, but it's not happening. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> now um it's actually five past so oh, we're gonna have oh. to wrap wrap that up. Okay. Um but yes, thank you. It's I told you we could easily talk for two hours and instead we talk for one hour and I'm five my mother's minutes. daughter after all. <laughs> <laughs> um it's been really great. Um Paula, you've had such a amazing career and life so far and I know that, you know, I We've got many more books in, in the future. There's a new novel apparently she's been working on that I'm really excited for. Um, thank you for everything that you do for us and for all all writers and readers in New Zealand. I really really appreciate it, and I'm sure everybody here does as well. You, Rachel. Rachel. So, and uh, Paula will be signing her books out um, out in the foyer afterwards, so please please buy them. And if they're not on the table, then, then seek them out elsewhere. Thank you, Paula.
1: ora Rachel, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you.